Well, we are in the middle. We are in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is here, structurally, if you will, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Because prayer is the heart of Christian ethics. So the Sermon on the Mount is the heart of Christian ethics. And the Lord's Prayer is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Because for us, without having a well-formed, you know, properly ordered, fervent, persistent prayer life, our faith is deeply defective without this. We've already cited Calvin a few times. Remember, he said, prayer is the principal exercise of faith. It is just like breathing. It is what faith does. It's the principal exercise. So like any exercise, you can get in trouble if you don't do it, or if you do it improperly. And so the Lord's Prayer here is to say, here's what to do in this exercise of prayer. Here's what to do, here's how to do it. And last week we looked at the preface, Our Father in Heaven. Today we're going to start looking at the six petitions which make up the prayer. Six short petitions. It's often been noted, correctly I think, that the first three petitions focus on God, His name, His kingdom, His will. And the second three petitions, they focus on us. Right? Our daily bread, our need for forgiveness, our being delivered from evil. So, It's a basic, but it's a very important observation. The very shape of the Lord's Prayer, its priorities, if you will, is the shape of Christian piety. And the very structure of the prayer, then, displaces us, right? It removes man, even Christian man, from the center of things. Right? The structure of the prayer pulverizes our hubris, our egoism, our self-sufficiency, our need to always be at the center. It places God first, and second, and then third. The very fact, right, the very fact that we need to pray, we need to pray about this matter, that is this matter of God's name. The Westminster Larger Catechism says this shows our utter inability our lack of any disposition to honor God aright. Right, this is why our catechisms say that we are praying for God in these petitions to enable us and others to glorify Him, to enable us. Prayer is the language of the spiritually disabled. Right, it is the language of beggars. It is the language of the lowly. It is the language of of the poor in spirit. It is what people who embody the Beatitudes do. And so the Lord's Prayer then is, as all prayer should be, it is vertical. Up. To God, to heaven. 
before it starts thinking about, well, that, there's a need there, and there's a need there, and there's this horizontal thing, and there's that thing, it's vertical. It displaces us from the center. It's upward. It's theocentric, centered on God, profoundly oriented to God himself, to God who is our chief end, to God who himself is our highest joy. We saw this even in the preface last week, right? We prayed to our Father in heaven. And we saw last week that it matters profoundly so that God is in heaven. A created, presently veiled realm. That Christ is in heaven. That the saints are in heaven. That the angelic hosts are in heaven. And that we ourselves are there through the Spirit by faith. Heaven is the atmosphere or the context, the destiny of the Christian life. And thus we direct our prayers to God in heaven. So to put God, just God, God alone, and his glory, in his heavenly splendor, in his radiance, in his triune life and light, to put this God above all things is built into the very structure of praying. Even at the outset, even from the preface. And we might say that this first petition now, after the preface, the first petition, hallowed be your name, this is in many ways the chief petition. We, we shall return to this, but for now we can simply ask, why do we live and move and have our being? Why do we pray? Now, there's a lot of sort of Christian answers you can give for these things, but they're sort of second-tier answers. Why do we do anything we do as Christians? So that the name of God will be hallowed. Right? It is for this reason that the worlds were made. Creation itself exists and has being for this reason. We saw that in the the call to worship, and we saw it in that beautiful New Testament lesson from Revelation 4. So this morning, we're going to look at the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed Be Thy Name. And we'll have two points that are there on the outline in your bulletin, the name and the hallowing, the name and the hallowing. So first, first then the name, Hallowed Be Your Name. Okay, so God's name is not the letters, right, G-O-D. It's his character, his attributes, his godness. Unlike human names, right, which are chosen for numerous reasons, but human names remain distinct from the essence of the person, from the essence of who we are. You could change your name legally today and still be the same person. The essence of who you are would be untouched. It's not so with God. God's name is God. This is critical, right? And God is his name. And this highlights the utter uniqueness of the being or the name of God. Thus, when he reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. I just am the self-existent one, underived, independent, immutable, utterly faithful, unchanging, 
I am. Empires and worlds will rise and lapse and fall. I am the eternal God. This is what Yahweh, right? Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, translated in your Old Testament as Lord, using in capitals. This is what it means. I am. I am He. And this name by itself places our God outside of any class or any comparisons with any other so-called gods or beings. But this is a mistake often made by atheists and enemies of Christianity. They think there's a class of beings called God, and we're arguing that our God is the best one in that class. It's a total category mistake. The Christian God cannot be compared to anything else. He's incomparable. He's the unique one who alone just is. He is isness. He's the Lord, the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as he goes on to tell Moses. He condescends in covenant with us so that we might have fruition of him, our confession says, as our blessedness and our reward. So his name is who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. In his word and in his works, God, fortunately for us, in his kindness, makes his name known. He unveils his name in scripture and in the created order. And so when we look around, what do we see? Well, we see stuff. But we should also see the divine name reflected in an infinite array of creatures, each of which shows us just a thimbleful, just a droplet of his oceanic glory. That is why there's lots of things in the world. There's lots of things in the world because all things point in their own small way to the infinite fullness and glory of God. And so we don't worship the creation, but we do worship the God whose name is on display, whose name is revealed in the wild variety and the unity of the created order. And thus we say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We worship God's name. We bless the name. We call on the name. We meditate on the name. We celebrate the name. We are saved by the name. We are defended by the name because God's name is God. And when God comes in person to save us in Jesus Christ, right? He is given the name, which is above all names, at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That he is Lord, the Greek equivalent of Yahweh, the Greek equivalent of the God of the Exodus. Now, notice, in addition to the unique divine name from the Exodus passage with Moses, Scripture ascribes many, many other names to God. And again, this is because no single name, like names are derived from creatures, from our language. 
We have no choice. We start with things. We see a father. We reason back to fatherhood. So there is no creature or group of creatures which can exhaust God's unsearchable greatness. His infinitely full, replete, yet united being. And so we pile up names. Lion, rock. We have to keep piling them up. Son of righteousness. We could go on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. Because they're like multiple angles, like facets of a diamond on the ineffable mystery of the triune God. Even the preface of this prayer gives us this magnificent name, Father. We multiply names, plural. Yet because God is one, we speak of his name singular, as here. Hallowed be thy name. Right? To us, there are a myriad of wonderful names. But mysteriously in God, who is not made up of parts, he's not cobbled together. All of the names are one. They cohere in the tri-personal divine essence. Now we get something of a glimpse, something of just a glimpse, and in this life, when it comes to God, that's about all we get. We get glimpses. But we get something of a glimpse of this mystery of God in the Great Commission itself. Because there we are told to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? The three persons just are the name of God. And the name of God just is the three persons. And what's the whole Great Commission about? The name. It's often missed. People will talk about the baptizing and the discipling and the teaching. The commission's about the name. It's about the name of the triune God. That's what everything's about. But we'll come back to that. So the name then, God's name, is the, the thickest. Right? It is the most dense, it is the most mysterious, it is the most interesting, it is the most luminous, it is the most lovely reality. The name alone is. From it, everything else derives whatever being or splendor or goodness it has. That's the name. And it's that name, and this is our second point, that we are praying to be hallowed. Right, this moves far beyond just trying to get people to stop saying curse words, though of course it includes that. Right? It is the name that I just briefly sketched. We want that name honored. Hallowed here means something like sanctified, holy, revered, esteemed, honored, consecrated. We are not asking in the petition, right? we're not asking for the name to be made holy. Because the name is holy. His name is what it is. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be subtracted from it. God in no way depends on or needs his creation. We are praying first and foremost then for God's name to be treated. Treated or revered as holy. Sacred. Inviolable. Right, that is, a, as the third commandment tells us, 
that the name not be taken in vain. Which means the name of God not be treated lightly or profaned or taken as a casual or a common thing. Or evoked flippantly or unreflectively or without deep reverence. Now, I don't agree with the Orthodox Jewish prohibition on actually saying the name, but there's something profound about the reverence expressed there that is lacking in our circles. We're allowed to pronounce the divine name. But often we pronounce it too much, too quickly, too flippantly. There's a famous Jewish prayer for the dead, the Kaddish says, magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. So to, to hallow the name is to treat God, God himself, in all of our speaking, in all of our thinking, in all of our doing, as the supreme treasure. It is to treat God as the weightiest thing there is. Right? For God is the beginning and the end. God is never a means to an end, even a Christian end. Right? The language of the psalmist in Psalm 73 captures this idea of God himself as our supreme good. Where the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth I desire nothing besides thee. In this petition, hallowed be thy name, Calvin says this, we see that God's majesty deserves to be exalted far above all other concerns. Far above. Even all other Christian concerns. We have what I have called before a kind of God and X problem, where, it, where it's God, and the X thing is a very good, noble Christian thing. God in my ministry, God in the family, God in the culture, God in prayer, God in discipleship, God in, God in whatever your thing is, God in homeschooling, God, God in, in witness, right? God in personal pie, whatever it is. What turns out over time, that the X thing gets really, really big, and the God part shrinks really, really down. So that God ends up becoming a kind of background noise for the Christian X thing. In fact, at a certain point, you could just throw God out and replace it with green. You'd get the same result. Well, green wants us to do this, and green commands us to do that. But as for green himself, in his being, not particularly that interested. Here's a diagnostic tool that I use. It's intentionally provocative. Imagine a convert, you meet someone at a coffee shop for coffee, and you set the ground rules to the conversation. Right? There's no God and X in the conversation. The conversation can have no references to anything in the created order. Not your ministry, not your church, not your family, not your own Christian life, nothing. You're just going to talk with the other person over coffee about God himself and nothing but God. 
Well, that's 17 seconds right there, right? I mean, that's not going to last long. What, are you kidding me? The Calvin says that God's majesty deserves to be exalted far above all other concerns. We're not allowed to just collapse it into our concerns. We can't take three or four Christian concerns and just collapse them together and say, well, that's God's majesty right there. That won't do. No one, Calvin says, has enough of a burning passion. These these are his words. For the divine glory, unless he somehow forgets his own position and raises himself to seek him in his transcendence. This is what happens, by the way, in Isaiah 40, when the prophet has a vision of the transcendent God in his eternal glory. He glimpses something of who God is. And do you know what Isaiah's response is? He thinks that all the nations are as nothing and as less than nothing and as lighter than the dust on the scales. That's what he thinks of all of our endeavors. One glimpse of this God reorders and restructures souls and reprioritizes. Yes, we're going to come back to all the X things. They're all good. But the question is, do we come back to them restructured and in the right proportion? We ought to hold God in this proportion to all other things. We are not talking about some reality here which sort of mildly shapes things. To get a glimpse of God and His majesty is to think every concern of every creature in every nation, everywhere, is less than nothing. That's the distance between this God and our interior grasp of him. And it is a deep internal setting that we're asking for here. What we are asking for here begins with us. We are in the crosshairs of this prayer. When when the Apostle Peter tells the church to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, he uses this word used here for hallowed. So what he says is, hallow. Christ as Lord, where? In your heart. So here, we are praying for Christ to be hallowed in us first, in our deepest secret places. Right? To pray this way is to pray to be made holy, to be made reflectors of the name. The theater of the greatest battle For the name of God being hallowed in the earth is in the human heart. And particularly in the hearts of the people who are praying this prayer. Namely, the disciples of Jesus. And since his name includes, as our catechisms tell us, anything whereby God makes himself known. We're asking then that his word, that his sacraments, that his ordinances, that his church, that his worship be revered in us and in the earth. So, Gregory of Nyssa was a 4th century church father. He he was one of the key fathers in actually helping the church discern and articulate, as far as is possible, the mystery of the Trinity. And Nyssa wrote on the Lord's Prayer. And when he came to this petition, this is what he said. He said, this is what we are praying here. May I become, through thy help, Blameless, just, and pious. 
May I abstain from every evil, speak the truth, and do justice. May I walk in the straight path, shining with temperance, adorned with incorruption, beautiful through wisdom and prudence. May I meditate on the things that are above and despise what is earthly, showing the angelic way of life, for a man can glorify God in no other way, save by his virtue, which bears witness that the divine power is the cause of his goodness. Now that is how we are to hallow the name. That is what we are praying for here. But it's not all we're praying for. It is the center, but it's not all. We are petitioning God here, and we are seeking to get God to act. It's very important to remember that in the Lord's Prayer. We are seeking to get God to, to stretch his hand and do something. And what what we're grasping for here is to get God to uphold the integrity of his name in the earth. Not only to enable us, but to dispose and direct all things for his glory. Who, Who, we might ask, who's doing the hallowing of God's name here? We often think it's us that are doing it. But it's God that's doing it. In us, to be sure but also above us and through all things. We are seeking to get God to act. And we know this. This is why we had the Ezekiel reading from the Old Testament, right? We know that God is jealous for the glory of his own name. This is also something we can't duplicate as creatures, right? There is no egoism in this because God himself is the highest good. God delights in being God. And it's good for his creatures, it's good for his creation that his name be lifted up, that it be exalted on high above all other names. And he tells Israel repeatedly that by their sin they have done what? They have profaned the name. And that he will act. The Lord says, nevertheless, I will act. Not because of your righteousness, not because of my righteousness or our righteousness. I will act for my own namesake. You heard it in Ezekiel 36 there. The sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. God is going to hallow his name in the teeth of our disobedience, in the teeth of our exile. So, Because God is going to do this in the earth, the larger catechism says that we are praying that God would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him by his overruling providence, disposing all things to his glory. It would be hard to find a more comprehensive petition than this. Four words. Hallowed be thy name. We are praying that God would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him. And he would do it by his overruling providence, disposing all things to his own glory. So this this hallowing by God himself in us, in the earth, reaches its culminating action, of course, in Jesus Christ, the God-man, who in his high priestly prayer 
sums up his work with the disciples, saying this to the Father. You may remember this from John's Gospel. I have made known to them your name. That's it. That's Christian discipleship. Making the name known. And in the shadow of the cross, that same Christ prays, Father, glorify your name. It's this petition right here that Jesus repairs to in the decisive hours at the end of his life as he faces the terror of Calvary. This is what he prays. The reverencing of the name of God. It's not being abused. It's not being despised or ignored. It's being treated as weighty and ineffable. That is the first concern of Christian prayer. Is it our first and our chief concern? Again, we don't want to fall into this thing where God himself becomes background noise to all of our Christian projects. This is our hope, right? This is our yearning. This is our ache, that the name be hallowed. And if it's not, then we should repent. We should do the restructuring through the Spirit in our souls and reorder and adjust our prayer lives accordingly. That's the great opportunity we have before us as we as a community look at the Lord's Prayer. It's a gift of God's mercy to us. Now, I said at the outset... This is the chief petition. The next five petitions, they serve this one. John Piper puts this well. I want to quote him here. He says this, The purpose of the universe is for the hallowing of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His will is done for that. Humans have bread sustained life for that. Sins are forgiven for that. Temptation is escaped for that. Right? This then is the chief petition. This is the destiny of the cosmos. And when it is done on earth, as it is done by the angels in heaven, the end will have arrived. We heard the call to worship from Revelation 4. But John sees in his vision a day when all atheism and all profaneness and all idolatry is overthrown. A day when nothing unclean, nothing detestable, nothing false enters the cosmic temple of God. And you know what John says when he sees this? This is in Revelation 22, at the consummation of all things. He says, we will worship him. The saints will worship him. They will see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. But hallowing the name means being sealed in perfect creaturely communion with and as a reflection of that same unsurpassed name forever in glory. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen.